It's so great to be with you guys. Um, we are going, Bonnie and I are going back to uh, Minnesota tomorrow, and we're just dreading it anyway. <laughs> I hear it's, uh, um, uh, the snow's gone, and we, we get updates on Minnesota. Snow's gone, but it's still... It looks like death everywhere. <laughs> it's just great. Everything's great. Anyway, anyway, I got to get out of that. I love being with uh, Doug and Heidi. This is our fifth year with you. Hope to uh, keep this going. Um, I just feel this incredible synergy with you guys and what God's doing among you. Um, fifth week of Lent. I'm going to start off with a question. Um, it's getting maybe kind of a weird question. Take it by surprise. Here's the question. So what were you expecting? Uh, when you first started off, when you first signed on for this journey with Jesus, for some of you it's many years ago, for, for some of you it's, it's fairly recent, but when you first said yes to God, what kind of life were you expecting? And I think that's an important question, because expectations, what were you expecting, uh, uh, can be tricky things. Sometimes expectations are powerful things. They can be highly motivating things, get you up in the morning kind of things because you're expecting something good and you want to go for it today. But expectations can be dangerous things as well. I think you know that because expectations about anything stir up in us hope. You had great expectations about this or about that, and that's a good thing I think, better than, I don't know, no expectations or low expectations. One way to never be disappointed, keep your expectations low. I don't know. You know, something sounds a little iffy about that. But when great expectations, like that's what you want, uh, go unrequited, like unrequited love, uh, expectations can break your heart, when they're unattainable, when they're unreasonable, because sometimes we have unreasonable expectations, maybe unrealistic, maybe even based on a lie. It's kind of scary that you would have an expectation based on a lie because someone promised something to you um, and tried to sell themselves maybe to you in some way. So they promised you something that they would always or they would never, and it created an expectation, some expectations. Like when you got married. I mean, how many of you had a few expectations when you got married? Yeah. How many of you had expectations you didn't know you had? <laughs> Those are the ones that get you in trouble, right? Like, I expected this. Expect... But then we find out, wow, there, was these, there were these expectations I didn't even expect of her or that she had of me. And um, those can be troubling. Bonnie and I, my wife is sitting right over here, have been married 48 years. This last Wednesday, 48 years, which is... Incredible. We have seven adults. Four of them act like adults. They're seven, anyway. We have seven adult children and three of, and includes three of their spouses, ten amazing grandkids. And while I, I would say, and she would say, all of it was worth it. All of it, 48 years was worth it. It wasn't always what we expected along the way. Uh, although I, I, I got to say that Bonnie... Uh, pretty much got everything she wanted. <laughs> I get a bigger laugh in the first service. And I'm not looking at Bonnie right now. Truth is this, that expectations um, can mess with your head. 
a little bit. Sometimes they leave us bitter and disappointed. They can leave you disillusioned and even angry, sometimes angry at God because someone told you that if you do this and keep all the rules and and do all the right things, that God will do that, and there's kind of the deal you have, and so you did all the right things, at least you thought you did, and you kept all the rules, and then for some reason, this thing you expected to come from that didn't happen, and, and, and it's not what you expected. It's just not what you expected this life with God to be. So what were you expecting is the question of the day. When you signed on for this Jesus journey, when you first said yes to God, what kind of life were you expecting? Um, but now I want to take all of that stuff and, 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 and talk about all of that in the context of this Lenten theme we're kind of in the middle of, where for the last several weeks here at Hope, in the spirit of Lent, where people give something up for Lent, we've been considering some things that we might do well to give up beyond chocolate and things like that. So we talked about giving up darkness and giving up despair, giving up our isolation, um, not just gathering, but assembling ourselves. Pastor Jason, a few weeks ago, came and talked about that amazing talk about assembling ourselves together, some assembly required. And last week, Doug talked about giving up our grasping, our climbing the ladder of success that's kind of a relentless Ascent. He talked about a journey of ascent and invited us into a different kind of journey, a journey of descent, where we pick up the towel and he invited us into that fellowship of the towels. A very meaningful weekend. And so today, I want to, in the spirit of all, all that, I want to invite you into giving up. Now, this is supposed to be kind of funny. I just think it sounds weird. So we're going to give up expectations. Give up all your expectations this morning in church, which sounds Bizarre to me, just delightful, very inspiring, don't you think? I actually think it's a horrible idea. Makes me, makes me want to go back to the thing I said on the first Sunday I was here, that what I want to give up for Lent is Lent, that kind of thing, give up all expectations. This sounds so depressing, just going in. Um, bad idea, but here's a good one. I think this is a good one. Um, not give up expectations, but it would be a really healthy thing to grow up some of our expectations, to modify them and then adjust them to maybe how life actually works, particularly some expectations we have about God. So what were you expecting um, is the question of the day. When you first signed on for this Jesus journey, when you first said yes to God, um, what kind of life we are expecting that maybe some preacher even told you you could expect or even should expect. So what were you expecting when you said yes to God? When I was a kid growing up in church, my dad was a pastor, so I was in church all the time, like maybe some of you. And we sang a song in Sunday school, I'll never forget it, and, and it's just a cute little thing. It was just like Jesus to roll the clouds away. How many of you know that song? Just like Jesus to roll the clouds away. That's my singing. I'm really good. Um, it's a kid's song, so big deal, making a big deal. It's just a kid's song. It's harmless enough, I'm sure, but that song, when I think about it, it's just like Jesus to roll the clouds away. That song told me as an eight-year-old what to expect, that Jesus rolls the clouds away. Imagine my surprise, <laughs> right, when he didn't, when the clouds didn't just magically go away, when I said, make him go away, it's my birthday. He, he didn't care. Um, it's not what I expected, that, that there would be 
cloudy days and rainy days and difficult days, but we're told this thing, it's going to be wonderful because it's just like him to make it all better every day. It's not. It's not true. There's an adult version of that as well. Um, it's called the prosperity theology. Some of you know more about it than others, um, but it basically tells us that, that with the right kind of faith, we can be healthy and we can be wealthy. It's not even faith in God. It's faith in our faith, and that'll make everything go the way we want it to go. It's a, 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 a message that kind of tells us you'll have a better life, a prettier wife, a bigger house, a nicer car. You'll even have nicer seats at concerts, one best-selling author uh, writes, and first-class upgrades on planes, airplanes, if you just start believing that these things are possible, and on and on and on it goes, but brings me back to the question, so what were you expecting? Because if you were expecting that, that's an interesting thing you're going to have to deal with, because it doesn't work like that unless you're into magical thinking. This is not godly thinking. So what were you expecting when you first signed on for this Jesus journey, when you first said yes to God, what kind of life were you expecting? Because stuff like that, especially that prosperity theology where we kind of make a deal and think if we say it just the right way, we can get God to do what we want. It gets me wondering what were they expecting? And by they, I mean the people of the book. You know, like the Bible that we read, like the original disciples. Think of the original 12. Done some study in this. I'm sure you've done the same. They were kids. They were just kids. When Jesus said, come, follow me, maybe 16, 18 years old is what most kind of put their age at. And they said, come, follow me. And Jesus said, come, follow me in Matthew 4. And they did. But what were they expecting? I mean, they just did it. It's so weird. Immediately, remember that's in the text. And immediately they followed him. This is going to be great. What were they expecting? We can only speculate that kind of stuff. Um, but pretty quickly, in Matthew 4, remember this? Jesus calls, says to Peter and Andrew's brother, James and John, come follow me. They do. And then he begins to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is within your reach. And then the multitudes begin to come and he heals them all. And demons are being cast out. And word about him spreads. And the multitudes are getting bigger. And they weren't expecting that. But this is really good. What were they expecting? Were they expecting that? And then in Matthew 5, something shifts. Um, uh, pretty significantly, I think, Matthew 5, verse 1, it says that when Jesus saw the multitude, he did something no church growth person I know would ever do. He withdrew from the multitude because he didn't trust them. He ministered to the multitude, by the way. He fed them. He proclaimed the kingdom to them. He healed many among them, but he didn't cater to them. He didn't follow them. He withdrew from them in Matthew 5, and he went up on a mountain and called his disciples to him. The crowd grew larger later, but he started with just a few of his disciples. They came to him, and he began to teach them. He began to tell them, basically, you just experience this amazing stuff, but here's what you can expect. If you follow my way, and not just pick up my theology, but follow my way of living and loving and being in the world, what life in the kingdom might actually be like is what he began to talk about with them in Matthew 5, verses 1 through about 12. It's the Beatitudes is what I'm talking about. And how many of you know that in the Beatitudes, he didn't sit with his disciples and promise them tables at, you know, crowded 
restaurants and first class, follow me, first class upgrades on airplanes. Sounds ridiculous, because it is. Um, instead, he talked about brokenness and mourning. And he talked about meekness and mercy in Matthew 5, verse 4 and 5. And then in Matthew 5, verse 10, I made mean, a really big mistake from a marketing standpoint. I mean, if you're going to sell these guys, it's pretty early in the game. Don't tell them the hard stuff. Tell them the easy stuff. <laughs> when he tells them, you might actually suffer. Blessed are you when you're reviled and people cast insults at you and, and you, you suffer for because of me, because you actually followed me, because you followed me. No, no, where'd you get this idea of first class upgrades? You might not get in the restaurant if you follow um, there might be a price to pay if you do the right thing, if you do the righteous thing. So what were you expecting? <sighs> Makes a difference, doesn't it? Um, well, that's the first question. And what were they expecting? That's the second question. Here's the third. Do you think they, these disciples, who immediately started following um, with whatever expectations they had, do you think they ever wondered if it was worth it? Having followed, maybe paid a price, you think they ever wondered if it was worth it, especially when what he told them to expect actually started to happen because he told them, you may suffer. So when James was beheaded, read that verse, move on to the next. Whoa, 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 whoa. When James, James was beheaded, um, in Acts chapter 6, I think, Stephen was stoned. In Acts chapter 7, Peter was crucified. Legend says upside down. And all of it was because they did the right thing. It was because of him, because they followed him and they followed his way. And it didn't seem to get better. It seemed to get worse. So do you think they ever wondered if it was worth it? Final question. Have you? Have you, in your journey with God and the expectations you knew you had and maybe didn't even know you had, have you ever wondered if it was worth it? Because if you, if you have ever wondered if it was worth it, this talk is for you. It comes from the Apostle John, who, as many of you know, uh, was the only one of the 12 disciples, the 12 original disciples, who didn't die a martyr's death. So every other disciple but John dies what was probably an agonizing, um, horrific kind of death, but not John. So lucky him, except um, where John ended up was uh, in exile alone um, on a prison island called Patmos. And dying alone on a prison island called Patmos was not what he expected. I mean, I, I, I wonder at times as I get into the story if if, if in, in the inner recesses of his mind, in his heart, he would have rather had been martyred and have it done. He is in a prison island on Patmos. It's not what he expected. In fact, what he expected was kind of stirred up when the events of Pentecost happened because Pentecost is where it all started for him. I mean, his journey with Jesus began in Matthew 4, but the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, then Pentecost comes, the spirit lands, 3,000 people come to faith in one day. Things are looking up, but here in Revelation, I'm going to get to that in a second, when John ends up on the island of Patmos, all the disciples have already been martyred. It's 40 years later. Um, 
So Patmos is not what he expected. But here's the deal. It was in that unexpected place, and this is where you can maybe dial into whatever your situation might be. It was in that unexpected place, that place he didn't want to go, that God gave him a gift, and it's a gift I want to give somehow to you, and the gift he got was a vision. Actually, it was um, literally a revelation. It became a book in the Bible. We call it the book of Revelation that says some very strange things, as most of you know, and I suggest don't read that book. Anyway, but here's the deal about the book of Revelation. The book, the word itself, Revelation, simply means to unveil or to reveal. Apocalypsis is the word, and the primary unveiling of in the book of Revelation is not about the end times, though people get crazy about all that, or who the Antichrist is. I grew up with that kind of stuff, trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. And we were sure it was Gorbachev. He had a mark on his face and all that kind of stuff. I said, no, it's Elvis. I'm pretty sure it's Elvis. He's alive somewhere. Anyway, they didn't buy me, buy that stuff. Actually, the unveiling, the primary unveiling, and, and that makes the other stuff that we get preoccupied with look a little silly. The primary unveiling revelation was of Christ himself. First of all, to John, for the sake of some very specific People. This vision was coming to a group of scared and struggling churches in Asia Minor. There were seven churches in all. They were real churches with real people and real f- fears and discouragements. In fact, this was a group of people who had, begun, who had begun to wonder if it was worth it because of Rome's relentless um, commitment to wipe them, literally wipe them off the face of the earth. They had begun to wonder if it was worth it at all, if God's promises were true, if their future, even this promise they had of heaven were actually, was actually secure because to them at the time, Rome looked much bigger and stronger than God. Had it ever had anything that felt bigger than, hmm, wouldn't admit that in church, but it felt bigger than God. I'd pray to God to feel, though, I don't think God can fix this one. It's just, Rome is bigger than God, and that wasn't what they expected. But know also this. Well, this vision that's given to John that he writes down, and we see it in the book of Revelation, designed to encourage the churches, was also given to John for John himself. To remind John of some things and to reignite in him some things that had quite possibly begun to fade because some of the things we're real sure of begin to fade when we're on a Patmos of some kind to hopefully re-enlist the energies of this gifted and faithful, faithful to the end kind of <clears throat> servant who very possibly had come to believe that his usefulness in the kingdom of God was over and kind of feeling useless is not what he expected to feel. Um, a word about Patmos uh, might be helpful to get the picture here. Patmos was a prison island to which uh, John had been banished by Rome. Uh, uh, if the crime that you were sent there for was criminal, um, you might have hard labor. If it was political, which is probably why John was there, he was most speculate that he was allowed to move about on the island. So there was a measure of freedom. We're not sure which, but either way, here's the deal. He's a long way from home. Okay, and he's a long 
way from the people he loved, but even more, he's a long way from where it all started. So what were you expecting when you began this journey? Well, John is a long way from when it all began for him on the island of Patmos. Let me just think about that. Let me put some pieces together for you relative to his life. John had been friends with Jesus, described in the Gospels as the disciple that Jesus loved. He'd heard Jesus preach with authority and minister with grace. He saw him heal the sick and raise the dead. And John was there at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the clothing with power from on high arrived and they were so full of confidence and hope and visions of a changed world were, 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 were not a fantasy. I mean, they, they felt like a possibility. Um, they just weren't hard to imagine. John had preached in Jesus' name and saw results. He had planted churches, written a gospel that bore his name and three epistles, but that was a long time ago. Um, indeed, sitting on Patmos had to make Pentecost feel like a lifetime ago. Have any memories like that? That's where I'm at. I, I, all you can do is remember that time that your nostrils were flaring in terms of confidence of what God would do. Not anymore. It doesn't mean you don't love God, but you're on Patmos of some sort. It's not what you expected. So here he is, banished to this prison island, isolated exile, forced to suffer, not death, but a sense of uselessness and irrelevance. It's not what he expected. He couldn't use his gifts. They couldn't preach or teach. The joys and encouragements of fellowship and worship and community, all of that had been cut off. He was on this island. Couldn't even talk to the people that he loved. The euphoria of Pentecost faded. Rome, again, was the ascendant power. And the church, in his day, at least from what he could see, looked to be a weak and ineffective force against unstoppable evil, which is how the church today sometimes Feels. When you think of unstoppable evil, like real evil, the church just at times is, oh my goodness, this is just, just like, uh, the evil's bigger than us. At Pentecost, I thought the kingdom had come. I thought, I thought we would change the world. It looked so possible, even probable. 3,000 were saved in one day. Why not keep the ball rolling Forty years later, however, um, let the island of Patmos be that place in all our lives where we scratch our heads and wonder why. Um, because it's not what we expected. But now to all of that, add this. That John would never leave Patmos. Okay, this is kind of, this is, <laughs> there's a happy ending. He gets off the island. No, he doesn't. Um, the circumstances, actually this is very important, the circumstances of his life would never change, but something does change inside of John because he gets to see something and in the seeing he remembers something that he knew but had forgotten. It happens to all of us because the island of Patmos, whatever else it was, was the place where Jesus was unveiled to him again. It was, he was revealed to him, again, in ways more glorious and profound and maybe even clear than even when John was with Jesus face to face. And so it is in verse 10 of chapter 1, John says this, tries to explain it 
this way, you guys, I was, um, I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. Um, don't know if he was in church, but on the Lord's Day, I was really dialing into the spirit and aware of that when I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write down what you see, John, and send it to the churches so that they can see what I'm showing you too. So I turned to see the voice. I love that. I mean, I don't, how do you see a voice? I don't know. must be significant. So I turned to see the voice, and the first thing I saw were seven golden lampstands. Stop right there. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches, real churches with real people in a real, real space and time, and he's right in the middle of the seven golden lampstands, and what he sees in the middle of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, and one like the Son of Man, that is Jesus. So Jesus is important. Jesus is standing right in the middle of his church, his seven churches. And by the way, while those are seven historic churches, they do stand symbolically for every church of every age, including this one. And he's right in the middle of his church, right in the middle of the mess. He's right in the middle of it all is where he sees Jesus. But I just need to warn you, says John, um, that my words won't do justice to what I saw, but I'm going to try to describe the indescribable as he goes on to the next verse. So here's my best shot. I'm talking as if I'm John to try to tell you what I saw, to try to say what I saw. Verse 14, his head was, and his head and his hair were like wool, white as snow. Um, well, that's weird. White his eyes were like fire, his feet burnished bronze, his voice was like the sound of many waters, and his words were like a sword, his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. But then when I actually saw him, he says in verse 17, I fell at his feet like a dead man. So there's some I don't, fear in here. There's, he's just going down. By the way, if you're in the unveiled presence of God, whatever you think about being slain in the spirit and some of it's weird. You're going down. So he goes down, okay? He falls at his feet like a dead man. And I just think this next verse is so gentle and incredible. But then, this is a paraphrase. It's like Jesus taps him on the shoulder and says, John, verse 18, um, don't be afraid. It's me. <laughs> I love that. Remember me? I am the Alpha and Omega. That's who I am. Remember? The beginning and the end, I am the living one. And yes, I was dead, but behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I hold in my hands the keys of death and hell. Rome does not hold those keys. I do. Which means you're going to be okay, John. Whatever your circumstance right here, end of the day, you're going to be okay. And so is my eternal church. Indeed, the things that are most alive in the church, and this goes for today as well. The things that are most alive about the church are things that can never die, ever. That's true here. But it's important to note something here again, that, it, that when this vision is over, at the culmination of this incredible revelation and transcendent experience, not one single thing has changed in John's physical circumstance. John is still on the island of Patmos, alone. And Rome is still seemingly in charge, but something has changed in him. Um, indeed, John has come 
alive because suddenly he's got a message and a mission and John has a means for bringing God to his people. He couldn't email them, he couldn't write, he couldn't speak, but now he's got a means to bring God to his people and the gospel to the world. And here's the deal about all of that, that what John saw in this vision, this unveiling of Christ, I love this, were things he already knew. Okay? He, was, he knew that Jesus was alive with his head like you do and I do. He knew all of He was there at the resurrection. He was one of the first after the women, which is significant, and that's another talk. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the first at the grave. So he saw Jesus alive. He saw him ascend to the Father. So he knew that he was alive and risen from the dead, but he needed to see it again. At least get a glimpse, and here's the word about that, so do you. And so do I, and so do we, because we forget, and so God gave him vision, um, and then he wrote it down, a word about visions. This is very important. George MacDonald, in his book, Unspoken Sermons, this is a very old book, says this about visions, let this in. Visions, if they are truly visions, and not wish fulfillment dreams, make things happen. They change things. By virtue of the vision, John the exile became John the empowered. Rome shut John away, so his churches could neither see him nor hear him, but the Holy Spirit filled his eyes with sights and his mind with speech that have given sight and speech to Christians ever since. The banishing decree of Rome was itself banished. Anybody, you guys, can dream up a happy ending to a story. But it's a cruel joke to the oppressed because it isn't real. They just made it up to make you feel better. A vision, though, sees what is actually there, not what frustration or disappointment wishes were there in true visions, even if it's just a glimpse. You get to see what's real. And this is what he saw. Separated from his church, not knowing how they were doing, he sees the penetrating attentive eyes of Christ. Tired and weak from his confinement, he sees the rock-solid, burnished, bronze, unshakable feet of his Lord, accustomed to speaking with authority and regularity to his Church, but now having lost his voice, they can't hear him at all. He hears the voice of his Christ, the Lord of the church. Like the sound of a trumpet, he said, verse 20, verse 10. Like the sound of many waters, he said, in verse 15. And living at the mercy of Rome's sword, he sees the word of God in verse 16, proceeding like a sword, from the mouth of Christ, and it did not return void. That is the word that came from his mouth. But the best part of all is this. Uh, he wrote it all down. Um, so we can see it too. So let's look and see. Let's hear. Let's listen and hear because the first thing he says, I'm going to run through this quick. Verse 13 is one like the Son of Man, standing right in the middle of the lampstands, which again means he's not an absentee landlord. Uh, he did not ascend to his throne at the right hand of God 
to exercise authority by remote control. He's right in the middle of it all, right this moment. Which means he is the, Jesus is the Lord of the church. He is with the church, including this one, Hope Covenant Church. And he was clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, it says in verse 13. And girded across his chest was a golden sash, all weird stuff, but it all has meaning. It's garb that speaks to both a king and a priest. Robe reaching to his feet, king, girded with a chest and golden sash, priest. As a king, the kingly symbolism means he is king and he has a right to rule in your life and in mine and in our church as a priest. His priestly function is to present his people to God Pure and holy, these are, and then present God to us so we can know God. For Jesus made access to God possible by opening routes through his death and resurrection that were closed by sin and shame and guilt and fear. And he blew them open so we'd have access to God. And that's what John sees. And he's remembering it too. Maybe even as I say this, it's, happening to you, you're remembering and you're seeing some things you already know, and then there's his hair thing, because his hair was white, um, like white wool, verse 14, and his eyes were like fire, it speaks of two things, symbolically. <clears throat> First, the hair speaks to the fact that he knows, the second, the eyes is that he sees. Again, the knowing um, about the hair speaks to the color of the hair, and this is weird, um, because his hair was white like white. Well, and my hair is white. And um, <laughs> we live in a culture where, where, where you, you, you're not supposed to have gray hair. You need to color it. And um, um, I was not able to avoid getting white hair. And I don't care. Now I like it because actually, by the way, this is symbolic. Because not everyone you know with white hair is wise, right? <laughs> okay. But symbolically, uh, in Proverbs 16.31 says, a gray head is a crown of glory and speaks symbolically <clears throat> to the wisdom that some people have who've been around long enough to know where this is going, where we've come from. Um, so when Jesus identifies himself in verse 17 as the Alpha and Omega, again, kid in church, I grew up in church, he's the Alpha and Omega and might as well be going, he's blah, 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 blah. When Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega, I am the beginning and the end, I am the first and the last, he's saying, among other things, this, I was there, you guys, John, whoever, Hope Church, I, I was there in the beginning, and I will be there in the end. I am the ancient of days, which means there are some things I know that you don't know. And there are some things I see that you can't see. Nothing wrong with you, you just can't see them like the beginning. You can't see that. I see that. I was there and the end. You can't see that either, especially when you're on Patmos. So I know, says God, about your circumstance, what you're going through and to the, indeed to the seven churches of the revel, in the Revelation. He says in chapter 2, verse 2, I know your deeds. I, I see. I know. Um, I know your toil and perseverance, that you don't endure evil men, your tribulation, poverty, and persecution. I know, I know that you dwell where Satan's throne is, and you, you feel like you're being overwhelmed, and that you have held fast to my name in the middle of that place, and I know that you're discouraged, because it's not what you expected. 
when you first said yes to God. But I also know the rest of the story. Because I'm the ancient of days. I was there at the beginning. I'll be there at the end. And what I know that you don't know, John, Hope Covenant Church, this is a word for the ages. What I know that you don't know is that the season you're in does not have the power to de- define your identity or determine your destiny, which brings me um, to my all-time favorite uh, dad story about <laughs> my dad, actually. I was in high school uh, playing football. Um, I was a 185-pound tackle. Now, if anybody here knows anything about football, you're, go- you're going, What? Because the tackle, the guy who plays tackle on football, is usually the biggest guy on the team. They're like 200 million, five pounds plus 10. I mean, they're huge, and I'm not. And, and, but it, it was probably the team stunk. <laughs> In two years of varsity football, we won two games. I, I, was the, I played tackle. And um, there was one memorable week where we were about to play that week, Finger, a, a school called Finger High School, also in part of the Chicago Public League. And that was a team that hadn't lost in two years. This is going to be a fun week. Um, <laughs> in the middle of the week, an article came out in the Chicago Sun-Times featuring the guy who played tackle for Fenger High School. <laughs> um, he was 6'5", 260, going, on a, going to Michigan, the University of Michigan, on a full ride, and he was going to be my guy all day, um, uh, both ways, I mean, every play in those days, how many of you, if you played, maybe when in my vintage, you you played both ways. You never got off the field. And it wasn't because, oh, you must have been good. As a matter of fact, I was. (laughs) No. We stunk. There's no one else to put in there. Every play, the whole game (laughs) long, and and I, uh, against this guy. I I remember many things about that day. It was really hot. I remember that. The field was dusty and, and it was rock. Hard. Uh, I remember vividly we lost the game. <laughs> um, it wasn't close. <laughs> I held my ground, but I got pounded. I got pounded. Another thing I remember was that my dad was there. And as, as everybody goes, oh, isn't this Well, part of the reason I remember my dad being there was because we stunk. No one else was there. Just him. And my girlfriend, maybe. Um, but I can see him. And he stood at the top of the bleachers. That's where he was. Right up there. Um, and that whole day long, where I was getting pounded on this rock-hard, dusty, hot field, um, he followed the line of scrimmage. All day long, every play, back and forth. And there's a couple of things I'm really grateful he didn't do. And this speaks to our life with God, too. I, um, he didn't rescue me. And God doesn't. Let's do that. He didn't come down and go, get him out of here. This is my son. Oh, that would have been great. He didn't, he didn't rescue me, and he didn't fix it for me. Maybe he could have. I don't know. It wouldn't have been a good thing, I promise you. Um, but, he, but I could see him. And even though he didn't fix it, and he didn't rescue me, um, his eyes were like a flame of fire, which means he saw. And his hair was white, like white wool, because he was old. Now, 
I was 17. Dads are old. So in my mind, he was old. Uh, he might have been 40 for all I... <laughs> no, but he was old. But the fact that his hair was white symbolically, now I didn't know this then. I didn't put this together then. But now I'm going, it means he knew. This is why it mattered to me that he was there. He knew. And what he knew on that stupid day... Who cares about a football game like this? What he knew, among other things, was this. He knew that we would lose the game. My dad had a prophetic gift. He could see the future. (laughs) They're going to (laughs) lose. And he knew that I was getting pounded. And he knew that I was sometimes being embarrassed by this guy. This guy was good. And he knew that I would be discouraged, might even want to quit. But he also knew some things I didn't know. He was the ancient of days. Um, and he saw some things I couldn't see, partly because I was 17, and partly because we're just human beings. We can't see the whole thing. I didn't have the big picture, because all I could see was that afternoon, playing Finger High School, that was my very small Patmos. And what he knew that I didn't know, this is my dad, and what he saw that I couldn't see was that that game on that field on that day, indeed, that entire season where we only won two games, none of that had any power to define my identity or determine my destiny, and it helped me to know he knew that he saw he was the ancient of days. See, I was getting pounded, says John, in the book of Revelation, My dreams were dashed. My hopes were destroyed. It wasn't what I expected. And I was beginning to wonder if it was worth it. Then I turned to see the voice. And and having turned, I saw him. Right at the top of the bleachers. That's where he was. Right in the middle of the seven churches. Is where he was, and his hair was white like white wool, which means he knew, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, which means he saw, and what he knew that John didn't know, and what he saw that John couldn't see was that this place of shattered dreams and bitter disappointment did not have the power to define his identity or determine his destiny, because I know the rest of the story, John, <laughs> and the rest of the story is this. We win, uh, John, um, so write what you see. Weird as it is, write what you see. Be faithful to the end. And I'm, I'm really glad he did um, because we get to see it too. I mean, I'm talking about it now and you're seeing things that maybe you've never thought of before, had explained before, but because he wrote it down, we get to see it as well and hear it as well 2,000 years later. So let me close with this as I invite the worship team to come up and take their place as we move now to the table. Um, Simply this. In fact, it wouldn't hurt to close your eyes and just hear the voice that John heard saying simply this, don't be afraid. It's me. Remember me. I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I was there at the beginning. I will be there 
at the end, I am the first and the last. I am the ancient of days, which means I know some things that you don't know. I see some things that you can't see. And what I know that you don't know, Hope Covenant Church, and what I see that you can't see is that whatever kind of space or place you might be in right now, whatever unexpected Patmos you may feel exiled to right now, does not have the power to define your identity or determine your destiny. So get to work, John. And this is a bit of a paraphrase here. Um, I mean, seriously, John, what, is, what, what did you think? Just because you're trapped on this prison island by the most powerful and oppressive government known to man, I can't use you? Do you think that? Pick up a pen and write what you see. Here's the deal, John, regardless of what you might have expected relative to your life with me, there are people still to love. And there are hearts still to win. And there are prayers still to be prayed. And there is great worship still to be offered. So I say we offer some right now in this room as we go to the table and even as I do that, the band is here, but the stewards can come, and as they come, and we go to the table, just try to hear the voice, saying simply this, don't be afraid, it's me. As you take the bread and drink the cup, remember me, me Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I was there at the beginning, I'll be there at the end. I am the ancient of days. Holy Spirit be with us as we come to these elements in Jesus' name. Amen.